Thank you very much, uh, Siobhan, for that extremely generous and gracious introduction. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here this afternoon, more or less on my home ground, if that doesn't sound too familiar a term for these august uh, surroundings. And it's very nice to see such a welcoming sea of faces, some indeed familiar to me, uh, to uh, attend this lecture. Um, as Siobhan said, I'll speak for about 45, 40, 45 minutes. I haven't quite got a time to, down to the smallest minute, but I'm very happy to take um, any questions if we have a few minutes left over at the end, um, following something that is slightly unusual or unorthodox, but I'll get to that in a second. I have to say that um, before I begin in earnest, my earliest memory of Tom Moore is also my earliest formal visual memory. And that's because I think the very only original artwork we had in my very ordinary lower middle class but happy home in Green Trees Road in Dublin was a, uh, a watercolour above which was um, a copy of the famous uh, Sir Tom Lawrence uh, portrait of Moore. And this copy and the watercolour which I'll get to in a second, had been executed, painted by my great-granduncle, John J. O'Reilly. Now, I doubt if anybody in the room um, would remember John J. O'Reilly, uh, but what they might remember is the Clive Sullish, which is the great originary image of Irish nationalism in connection with the founding of the state, uh, not only with regard to um, uh, the periodical on Clive Sullish, but, of course, the original Irish postage stamps, which all featured the Sword of Light. And uh, it's not exactly a claim to fame, but it happens to be the case that, that uh, Clive Sullish was designed by this graphic artist and watercolorist, my great-grandfather, great-granduncle, I should say. The thing that struck me as a small child, not knowing anything about the Free State or Tom Moore or anybody else, uh, was I used to stare at this uh, portrait of Moore set above this watercolor. and um, I was struck by the fact that this man had very high color, very red cheeks, and uh, a kind of receding hairline, but still a slightly roguish look about his features. Uh, but the thing I really, really was disturbed by was that his high wing collar was pushing into the under of his cheek. And I remember thinking, that must be so sore. That, must be, that wing collar must be a permanent agony. Um, but beneath the little portrait of Moore was a portrait of the Vale of Avoca and the first words of the famous song. And uh, in reading for this lecture, I was found myself thinking about that, uh, about that portrait for, as I said, a reason I'm going to explain in a second. Uh, nevertheless, um, looking at the little portrait and the, color, uh, the watercolor of the Vale of Avoca reminded me that about 11 years ago, um, I as I often do, made a kind of pilgrimage to a place that I associate with various works. And on this occasion, I was going to the Vale of Avoca because um, I was about to bring out a book on the relationship between music and literature in Ireland, a book that was dedicated uh, to the late Brian Friel. And my wife and I went to, uh, to have a look at the meeting of the waters. And my wife, Shamay, is Chinese. And as some people will know here, she's got excellent English, I hasten to add. But um, many Chinese people don't, I mean, Chinese language doesn't offer a, a formal plural. And so sometimes Chinese people, when they're speaking English, overcompensate and they'll say the Ladakh plural where there's none. She said, Oh, I'm really looking forward to seeing the meetings of the waters. 
And I said, no, darling, it's uh, the meeting of the waters. And she said, no, surely it's the meetings. If it's waters, it must be meetings. And backwards and forwards. And anyway, we ended up in Avoca and looking out over the beautiful waters and so on. And we went into this little pub. I think it's called the Avoca Inn or something. And there on the bar of the pub, as I approached, there was a little sign. And written on it was, the meetings of the waters. <laughs> Now, the reason I'm telling that story, I think, is because much later in life, the meetings of the waters, the meeting of the waters, seemed to me an emblem of Moore's own uh, confluence of uh, music and literature, and more, more precisely, I think, of song and poetry. And there is a kind of meeting of the waters in Moore's imagination, and without any claim to uh, a comparison, uh, that confluence is one that has preoccupied me my entire working life. In fact, I sometimes think, as I mentioned once, that the, uh, actually it was here in the academy, that the ghost of the writer I might have been, uh, in a creative sense, hovers over the uh, pages of my academic work. But certainly this notion of being torn between music and um, literature, which more certainly was, uh, is a very familiar uh, dilemma to me. So at the end of this talk, uh, and this is the unorthodox part. Um, I'm going to reimagine Moore through the talk, I hope, at least to imagine him. But I'm also going to read a poem that I published uh, last year, which was dedicated to one of the future speakers in the series, Una Hunt, uh, which uh, reimagines Moore in a different way. It's a very short poem, so I hope you'll indulge me to that extent. Reimagining Thomas Moore. The current Renaissance in Moore's studies seems to me to involve nothing less than an astonishing recovery of Tom Moore's reputation in the long aftermath of a no less astonishing neglect. Moore the historian, Moore the novelist, Moore the biographer, and of course Moore the musician are now the focus of a reappraisal which could scarcely have been envisaged even 20 years ago, notwithstanding a continuous if hitherto sub subdued stream of scholarship, which only recently has come into its own. Moore is back in town. In my own work as a cultural historian of music in Ireland, I have tried to identify Moore's Irish melodies as the key text, so to speak, in the development of Irish art music since 1800. And more recently still, I have argued Moore's fundamental importance in the formative, if long neglected, role which music played in the growth of the Irish literary imagination from Moore himself right up to the present day. In such circumstances, one's best hope might be that Moore can no longer be credibly dismissed or silently eclipsed as he once was. Moore has come into his own as an essential force in Irish literary and musical history alike. He will doubtless remain a problematic figure, but no longer, I think, a risible one. It is at least certain that his striking absence from the narrative of, narrative of Irish literary discourse beyond certain Yeatsian condescensions is no longer tenable. Having been restored to that narrative, Moore also claims our attention in a host of other contexts. We can indeed recognize him as a vital source in the development of European musical romanticism, as in the astonishing influence which his poetry exerted on the great French composer Hector Berlioz, so that the entire tradition of French art song 
is now recuperated under the term melody, a designation which stems from Moore's own Irish melodies and their impact on Berlioz, we can also acknowledge that the enthusiasm with which Goethe greeted Moore's narrative poem Lalla Rook, which appeared when the Irish melodies were still in the course of publication. Lalla Rook not only gained from the German appetite for Orientalism in the early 19th century, it directly inspired the musical thought of Robert Schumann, whose setting of the second part of the poem, Paradise and the Peri, represents Schumann's great breakthrough as a composer of dramatic music. Moore's influence on Polish literature and on the poetry of Adam Miskiewicz is no less a part of his European patrimony, just as Miskiewicz in turn would influence the narrative structure of Chopin's pianistic imagination. In this talk, however, it is not the European musical afterlife of Moore which concerns me, but rather what I will seek to characterize as the imagined unities of Moore's approach to Irish music through the agency of his own verse. It is largely in this sense that I would like to reimagine Tom Moore this afternoon. I've used this term, imagined unities, because I'd like to bring to the surface two conjunctions which were to remain fundamental to Moore's understanding of his work insofar as he envisaged a remarkable relationship between music and politics and also between music and poetry, both of which animated the creation and indeed the reception of his Irish melodies almost from the start. The semantics of these imagined unities, as in music as an expression of political sentiment and poetry as a transliteration of musical intelligence and feeling, would endure in Irish cultural history for decades. Indeed, there is some merit in supposing that they yet apply with notable force. But Moore still awaits a reception adequate to his achievement, which has not perhaps been developed as rapidly as one might hope. We lack, for example, a scholarly edition of his complete works equal to the supremely successful biographical attention he has received from Ronan Kelly, notwithstanding the ambitious programme of current research through which his vast estate is now at least partially uh, surveyed and indeed recovered. One of the advantages of this research is that now Moore appears as a vital agent of British and Irish Romanticism, in which music itself was an otherwise muted presence for much of the 19th century. Those unities between music, poetry and politics, which Moore imagined and realised in the melodies, are all the more important on that account. In a moving letter to Mary Shelley, written in 1838, Moore remarked that, quote, the fact is, whatever people who knew no better may sometimes have thought of me, none of the great guns of our modern Parnassus, Shelley, Wordsworth, Southey, and so forth, have ever acknowledged or admitted me as a legitimate brother. And in this, I have a strong suspicion they were not much mistaken, unquote. Wilfred Dowden, the editor of Moore's Letters, published an extract from Mary Shelley's reply in which she credibly contradicted Moore, specifically in regard to her brother's high opinion of his lyric genius, quote, especially in the department of poetry, peculiarly your own, songs and short poems, instinct 
with the intense principle of life and love, unquote. That's not a bad summing up of Moore's immediate reception history as a British romantic, so to speak, except, of course, that Byron, for one, immensely preferred Moore's lyric poetry and his explicit address upon Ireland to anything Wordsworth or Shelley had written. But as Moore entered his 60s, he must have known that Mary Shelley was being kind after all, at least insofar as his fantastic popularity as the author of the melodies and of Lalla Rook far eclipsed his waning reputation as a legitimate poet. The author of Lalla Rook found himself acclaimed on its original appearance in 1817 as the most ingenious, brilliant, and fanciful poet of the age. But 20 years later, there were few British critics who would have endorsed that opinion, even if Moore's popular appeal as a lyric poet abided. As we now know, much worse was to follow. Moore's steep decline throughout the 19th century is itself indicative of a sea change in English romanticism, which left Moore's orientalist fantasies and his lyricism both far behind in favor of Wordsworth's discovery of the still sad music of humanity and indeed the growth of the self as a poetic subject. The verbal music of Wordsworth's own poetry, even from a technical point of view, had almost nothing to do with Moore's conjunctions of music and verse. And as Helen Hoover Jordan, a slightly earlier Moore biographer, once remarked, quote, critics observed that the author of Lalla Rook and the Melodies would not produce a school of Moore as the school of Wordsworth or Byron had arisen, for no other poet could work in the two media of music and poetry. The critics were right. The luster of Moore's reputation in the years following the publication of Lalla Rook no more secured his position as a British romantic than it redeemed his ambiguous standing as an Irish proto-nationalist. To work in the two media of music and poetry was to fall between two stools. In a famous letter to his musical collaborator on the Irish melody, Sir John Stevenson, Moore remarked, quote, our national music has never been properly collected. And while the composers of the continent have enriched their operas and sonatas with melodies borrowed from Ireland, we have left these treasures to a great degree hidden. But we are come, I hope, to a better period of both politics and music, and how much they are connected in Ireland at least, appears too plainly in the tone of sorrow and depression which characterizes most of our early songs." Unquote. This letter was written in 1808 and partly reproduced as an advertisement to the first volume of the melodies which appeared that year. If ever a unity was imagined in Irish cultural history, it was precisely this conjunction between music and politics which Moore identified as a primary expression of the relationship between art and life. Moore's professional engagement with Irish music was almost by chance. He had been approached by the Dublin publishers William and James Power with a view to arranging Irish melodies to his own verse in 1807, along with other poets. And two years before that, in 1805, the Scottish publisher George Thompson likewise invited him to contribute to a volume of Irish airs in succession to the volumes that Thompson had previously published, which featured arrangements by Joseph Haydn. 
in the event Moore, Tom, Moore turned Thompson down because of other commitments. But the idea obviously appealed, to say nothing of the prospect of appearing in succession to the great Haydn. But when Moore soon afterwards accepted the invitation from the Power Brothers, he enterprised something quite different from those well-tried commissions which Thompson had envisaged and which formed part of a wider tradition in which arrangements of Scottish, Irish and Welsh airs by well-known continental composers were set to words selected by publishers such as Thompson himself. Moore's project was completely different. He would be engaged with Sir John Stevenson to collaborate in the provision of symphonies and accompaniments to the airs, but crucially, he would also adapt the airs to accommodate a sequence of verses of his own invention intended to promote precisely this imagined unity as between music and political sentiment. Moore's avowed intention in the melodies was, quote, that of interpreting in verse the touching language of my country's music, interpreting in verse the touching language of my country's music. And it was this unity, as between words and music, which distinguished Moore's collection from every other cosmopolitan arrangement of folk song. If I pause here over these two imagined unities, first between music and politics, and second between music and verse, it is because both of them would prove vital to Moore's purpose and vital indeed to the success and the controversy which the melody stimulated from their earliest appearance. They are the melancholy ravings of the disappointed rebel, exclaimed the anti-Jacobin review of the first two volumes, a condemnation which incisively carries forward the political tenor of Moore's enterprise at a time when the merest hint of Irish political autonomy or oppression entailed the risk of reprisal. When Moore sat down to write these songs, the penal laws had been recently repealed and his memory was still fresh with that time of terror and torture which dominated his days as a student in Trinity College, Dublin. Perhaps a venue of terror and torture for some students even yet. This was a period in which his friends and colleagues, including Robert Emmett, were interrogated and, in Emmett's case, executed on foot of their involvement in the disastrous rebellion uh, of 1798. Small wonder, perhaps, that Moore should have insisted upon the intimacy between music and politics in Ireland. This was not an intimacy that was easily conceded elsewhere. In his attempt to translate, as it were, Irish music into English verse, Moore ex excited the vehement opposition, not only of the Tory press, but of those antiquarian scholars from whose collections he selected the melodies in the first place. In particular, Edward Bunting, whose general collection of the ancient music of Ireland, published in 1796, was to prove a fertile source for Moore, deeply resented what he took to be the misrepresentation of this volume in Moore's hands. Bunting was an antiquarian and a scholar. His dramatic introduction to Irish music took place at the Belfast Harp Festival in 1792, when he wrote down many of the melodies he later published from an assembly of blind and elderly harpers whom Bunting regarded, not unjustifiably, as the last representatives of an almost completely defunct Gaelic musical culture. But Moore saw matters differently. 
he understood these melodies to be of comparatively recent provenance, which is to say from the early part of the 18th century, and he disputed Bunting's claim that the general collection preserved in any material sense the actual music of an ancient civilization. This difference between Bunting and Moore is critical, but it does not entirely overcome the shared affinity between them, at least in so far as both men took refuge in an idealized and largely mythologized vision of Gaelic culture intended to redeem by contrast those sad degrading truths, in Moore's phrase, of recent Irish history. Nevertheless, the profound difference between Bunting's published collections of Irish airs, also arranged for piano, and Moore's Irish melodies can be characterized as the difference between an aspiration towards history on one side and an instinct for romanticism on the other. Even if the distinction between these two was often blurred in the early 19th century, and not only in Ireland, of course, the gulf between scholarship and imagination, which lay between Bunting and Moore, was and remains unmistakable. Bunting complained of the, quote, drawling, dead, doleful, and die-away manner, unquote, in which Moore represented the melodies from his collection. Moore, by contrast, insisted on the tone of sorrow, which for him would become the true condition and purpose of Irish music. In that progression, his own verse was to prove decisive. In March 1809, an advertisement for the second volume of Bunting's Ancient Irish Music was published in the Belfast Monthly Magazine. There it was announced that, quote, the long-expected collection was in the press and would shortly be published with the highest embellishment of London engravers. According to the advertisement, it had fallen to the compiler to rescue many errors that in their native simplicity lead directly to the heart when they were once on the point of being lost forever, a task to which Bunting had already devoted a great portion of his life. The predominant object throughout had been to present the music unadulterated, for which this island was celebrated from remote ages and which occasioned the harp to be quartered in her arms, thus Bunting. However galling it may later have been to Bunting to compare the runaway success which Moore and Stevenson enjoyed with the early volumes of the Melodies, the first two of which appeared in 1808, by comparison with the sluggish dissemination of his own volumes in 1796 and 1809, the obvious key word in this description is unadulterated. The implicit comparison with Moore and Stevenson is unmistakable. In some sense, for Bunting, Moore is corrupting the science of his collections. Bunting sought a scientific recension of whatever might be preserved of Gaelic music culture, Moore's Irish melodies, by contrast, could only be regarded as a kind of romantic opportunism. A letter from Bunting published in the monthly Panorama for June 1810, in which he clarifies editorial decisions he had taken when preparing this second volume in 1809, charges John Stevenson with introducing, quote, no less than 11 errors um, from Bunting's earlier collection into the first volume of the Irish melodies. And Bunting continues. It's a longish quote. It is far from my wish to deprecate any attempt to extend the knowledge of Irish music in whatever form it appears. I must, however, be suffered to say what is obvious 
on the face of our respective works, that they move in different spheres and aim at different objects. One of these consists of tunes generally known in Great Britain and Ireland, forming a selection which an able musician could produce in his elbow armchair. The other is a collection which embraces similar objects with the advantage of having every well-authenticated, valuable, and really ancient melody that could be restored by the active exertions of almost my lifetime, a collection which at this period is out of the power of any other person to make." Unquote. A reply was received from William Power, one of the brother publishers of the Irish Melodies, which appeared to, in the July issue of the same journal, the monthly panorama, in which Bunting is admonished for devaluing the work which Moore and Stevenson had achieved and for questioning their right to employ their talents upon any error which he, Bunting himself, had taken the trouble of noting down during this period. Power continues, really, sir, to hear Mr. Bunting speak, one would suppose that the rich stream of Irish music was like that celebrated river Chaospes in Persia, of whose waters only one pair of privileged lips may, might taste. But this monopolizing editor must bear to be told that the wild warblings of national song are as common property as the air through which they float, that we have just as much right to these Irish diamonds as himself, and that the tasteless workmanship of the setting is all he can exclusively call his own. It was this rebuke which prompted Bunting at last to declare his hand. The fact is, Mr. Power's Melodies of Ireland, he means Moore's Melodies, are twisted and turned, wire drawn and curtailed at will to answer the words of a poet, while my general collection of the music of Ireland uses the poetry merely as a vehicle of and subservient to the strains. To answer the words of a poet, whether or not Bunting added words to his second collection simply to improve his chances in the market, as Thompson had done, we cannot doubt the shrewdness and legitimacy of this distinction between his work and the Irish melodies. If this wasn't a discrimination and a self-conscious one between history and romance and between science and imagination, it is hard to know what was. The reception of the Irish melodies so rapidly overcame their initial hostility, especially that afforded by Tory press, that in the end, Moore's assimilation into polite society would render his songs politically innocuous. The rebels' melancholy ravings would become instead the sentimental refuge of the drawing room, the very essence of a romanticized Ireland safely removed to the dim reaches of an improbable past. The spirited impatience of young Ireland, fortified by revolution in Europe and by the precedent and example of Giovine Italia, swept away the political pretensions of Moore's lyric imaginings and consigned these to an irrelevant politeness which had little to say to the cultural nationalism of the 1840s and 50s. Not everyone condemned Moore outright, but James Clarence Mangan's judgment spoke for many when he published the following assessment in 1849. Moore's songs were made for the ballroom and for gentle maidens who sat down to a piano manufactured by some London house. They are, beyond a doubt, matchless in their fashion, but before Moore sang, our grandmothers at the spinning wheel and our great-grandfathers, whether delving in the fields or shouldering a musket in the brigades, sang these time-consecrated verses to keep alive the memory of Ireland, her lost glories, and cherished aspirations. 
before Moore was, these bards were, and it is but fair to give their memory the honour which some would bestow exclusively on the author of the Irish melodies. How few out of the whole mass of our peasantry ever heard a single song out of the melodies. Mangan got almost everything wrong in this judgment. The time-consecrated verses which he arrogates to the Irish peasantry were Moore's own, and the very sentiments of national or even patriotic aspiration which he credits to them, to say nothing of his deft conflation of peasant culture and Gaelic aristocratic bards, are romanticized inventions after the fact conceived by Moore in the first place. Mangan condemns the artistry of the melodies on the grounds that they are unknown to the peasantry, a judgment which, if it were allowed to stand, would likewise condemn the whole enterprise of poetry and music in Europe. But stand it did. Thomas Davis, the principal architect of Young Ireland, had already condemned those scented paltry things from Italy in a memorable formula which claimed that it is not needful for a writer of our songs to be a musician. In a country already deeply divided on the merits of art music, this proclamation would prove to be disastrous. Moore's reputation, meanwhile, sank beneath the weight, the weight of a cultural nationalism which extolled native Irish music as a primary marker of authenticity and identity, even as it disdained the generic and technical prowess of European art music as nothing more than an expression of colonial servitude. In these circumstances, the originality of Moore's songs could not survive their connotations of pandering sentiment. If only for that reason, Moore's work would play little or no part in the literary revival of the 1890s, and he would be excluded with icy disdain from the company of those who sang to sweeten Ireland's wrong, in Yeats's famous phrase. Ferguson and Mangan were in, Moore, alas, was out. But this posterity should not be allowed to eclipse the originality and indeed the influence of that second unity between music and poetry, which I have identified here as belonging to Moore, in which he sought to express the meaning of Irish music in English verse. It is not only the beauty of the songs themselves which matters on this account, but the originality and significance of the attempt itself. Moore, for the most part, transformed the rudimentary condition of the songs he found or the tunes he found in Bunting and elsewhere into a synthesis of music and poetry by which an enduring image of Ireland was cre created. His auditory imagination was both verbal and musical. He heard inside the condition of Irish music a romantic projection of dispossession and longing, and he converted that meaning, however at odds it was, with the provenance of the music itself, into an arch-romantic reading of Irish music as an expression of Irish history. Irish music as an expression of Irish history. In that endeavor, he not only followed the structural precedent of the melodies upon which he depended, so that the meter and rhyme of his verse closely corresponds to the phrase lengths and melodic correspondences of the original tunes, very unusual and I would say practically unique feature of verse in English in the early 19th century. But he also established a mental journey, as it were, from musical beginnings to verbal endings, which would continue to preoccupy Irish writers throughout the later 19th and 20th centuries. 
as songs such as Dear Harp of My Country, from the sixth volume of the Irish Melodies, which takes a country dance tune first published in 1775 and divorces it from the obscene contempt for European art music vested in its original text, becomes instead a meditation on the silenced condition of Irish musical art newly awakened by the power of Moore's own lyric seductions. A ballad which originally sneered at the emasculated condition of European art music and the music of Handel in particular is transformed by Moore into a sung poem in which the symbolic power of Irish music is newly imagined in a synthesis of word and tone which speaks and sings directly to the consolations and vigour of art. In that synthesis or unity, Moore established a mutual degree of dependence as between Irish music and literature, which would endure for over a century afterwards. The impact of these imagined unities on Moore's reputation deserves a moment's further scruple. One contemporary perspective beyond the bunting Moore controversy brings this into sharp relief. This is afforded by Moore's close contemporary, no less than Ludwig van Beethoven, who made 71 arrangements of Irish melodies between 1809 and 1815 at the behest of George Thompson, the same uh, Scottish publisher who had approached Moore. Published between 1814 and 1816, these arrangements were poorly received in Britain and Ireland and did not even enjoy the status of an opus number in Beethoven's catalogue of works. Beethoven, in fact, was eclipsed by Moore even before he started. This is simply because of the unitary force of Moore's poetic achieved in direct response to the errors themselves. This quality of translation as from music translated into poetry, and more particularly from Irish music into English verse, remains supreme uh, throughout the Irish melodies. It is scarcely necessary to add that this quality is completely absent from Beethoven's settings, nor do we need to overplay the radical contrast that obtains between the organic force of Beethoven's compositional technique in 1814 and the constricted condition of Beethoven's Irish arrangements written to be blunt for a ready market. The Beethoven settings, in fact, were routine commissions. It is, however, relevant to this comparison to recognize the fundamental difference between a musical constituency of interest such as Beethoven's, in which words inspired music rather than the other way around, and Moore's constituency in which music uniquely inspired a sequence of freshly conceived poetry. Everywhere else in Europe, it was, of course, the words that preceded the occasion of a musical setting, prima le parole, as the old Italian formula has it, the words come first. Moore's verse, moreover, was destined to exert a profound influence on the subsequent development of Irish letters without reference to the music which gave it life. Moore's poetry, although indirectly, spoke to the political culture of his own day. So too did Moore's reading of Irish music as a semantic code of loss and dispossession. Nothing could be farther from Beethoven's routine conception of Irish folk song in which the a priori condition of the melodies he received from Thompson was adorned in the contemporary dress of vocal settings entirely innocent of and indifferent to Moore's romanticism. 
Although recent research into Beethoven settings promotes a greater knowledge of Irish music as an exoticism in Europe or an exotic other, the verbal matrix of British and Irish Romanticism in the early 19th century say little of the expressly political associations of the Earls themselves, so uh, assiduously fostered by Moore, absorbed Moore and excluded Beethoven at one of the same time. Moore's songs became literary texts, of course an impossibility in the case of any Beethoven opus worth the name. The waning reputation of Moore's melodies as a mode of political repression, as the realization of imagined unities between music, politics, and poetry, indeed as an originary and exemplary moment in the history of Irish writing in English, has been recently redeemed, at least in part, by the resurgence of Moore's scholarship and performance to which I adverted at the outset of this talk. And this scholarship, in turn, restores to Moore a significance which in any case transcends the melodies themselves. It is unlikely, for example, that any anthology of Irish writing which embraces the 19th century would now omit the memoirs of Captain Rock from its purview, to say nothing of Moore's satires, biographies, and historical writings. Moore's absence from Declan Kybert's otherwise outstanding Inventing Ireland and Irish classics represents an omission wholly characteristic of his forgotten reception in literary history until 20 or so years ago. Declan said to me once when I asked him about that, oh, I just forgot about Moore. In the meantime, a passage from Brian Friel's play, The Home Place, from 2005, apostrophizes the unique resonance which the melodies achieved after Moore's death. The Home Place is set in 1878, and it includes a performance of Often the Stilly Night, which takes place off stage and which is explained to a bewildered English character in the play as follows. I imagine you have poets in England of much greater accomplishment, Mr. Richard, but Tom Moore is the finest singer we have, the voice of our nation. Yes, yes, a romantic man and given to easy sentiment, a mixture of rapture and pathos. But he has our true measure, Mr. Richard. He divines us accurately. He reproduces features of our history and our character. And he is an astute poet who knows that certain kinds of songs are necessary for his people. And they were especially necessary at the time he sang them. I think that in this passage, Friel goes to the heart of the matter, to the heart of what I have tried to identify in this talk. Moore is both singer and poet, both artist and national cipher. In these conjunctions, the synthesis, the unity which he imagined between the perfectibility and resonance of Irish music and the romantic impulse of his own fiery imagination finds its true purpose. The progression from music to literature which he perforce enacted, would endure in the Irish mind long after the Irish melodies had been consigned to fond remembrance, nostalgic sentiment, and, sorry to say, scholarly neglect. We can find this journey, this trajectory of musical beginnings and verbal endings so frequently in Irish writing that it can seem to amount to a principle of the Irish literary imagination. John Millington sings progression from music to drama, Joyce's similar path from music to fiction. Jim should have stuck to the music 
his wife Nora remarked late in his life. Bernard Shaw's determination to write plays expressly modeled on the precedent of Wagner's music dramas. These striking patterns originate in Moore's own artistic experience. It's time to recognize the originality of that journey and to give Moore in this, as in so many other respects, his due. I promised at the outset of this talk that I would seek to reimagine Moore at the end of this paper in a slightly different way. So what I'm going to do is read a very short poem called National Errors. And I just need to set this up a little bit in order to bring this talk to a close. As I mentioned, I published it in a collection which appeared last year, and the poem is dedicated to uh, Una Hunt. But it's an homage to Tom Moore, and the voice in the poem, the person who is speaking, the first person narrative in the poem, is somebody thinking about his father. The poem is the present tense of the poem is the 1860s, but he's thinking about a story his father told him from his father's youth in the 1820s, when this father attended a Moore soiree in London. So the poem is at second hand imagining a Moore evening in London and the kind of people who are there and the kind of people who are listening to Moore. But it is the son who is speaking in the poem, recognizing that everybody his father remembers is dead, his own father himself is dead, and also recognizing, as would not have been, this is my invention, but as would not have been unlikely, that this father figure, this man, literally his father, who had been in London in the 1820s, found himself as a land agent in Ireland in the 1840s and felt homesick for London, Georgian London, and not for the dreadful, blighted condition of Ireland during the famine. And the poem also mentions Moore because, of course, it's all about Moore, but because the father, near the end of his life, is whispering national errors, thinking about Moore, thinking about Sloperton, and thinking about, remarkably, that harp there, which is the famous Moore harp, which is in the famous painting of Moore uh, at his cottage in Sloberton. So I think I've said rather a lot about the poem. I'll just read it now and let you make your own judgment on it. National Errors. Father thought the company very fine. Lord Moira, Fitzroy sporting epaulets fresh from his regiment. A countess in shot silk and ostrich plumes near the piano. The Earl of Moyne, Kilkenny marble, a window sash, the blazing grate, Corsets, uniforms, warm pools of light, liveried servants with decanted wine, clabby and derwent at cards, London rain. The ladies motioned for silence as Moore began, a harmony just sufficient to bear the voice beneath his nearly spoken Irish songs, the ranks of death, attachments, ancient loss. Such things are best left fugitive, unreclaimed. Ireland needs good government, Darwin said. Sarah, Lady Seaton, gravely agreed. Her work on agrarian virtue vastly admired. All in this remembrance are now dead. Moore, the Countess, Fitzroy, hanged by the French, and Father, dreaming of Sloperton near the end, whispering national airs. He'd felt the wrench of exile, not in London, but at home, a warden of wasted estates not his own. Walking the blighted fields, he longed for her, lodged in that Georgian enchantment years before. Thank you very much indeed.